And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Man, you know I'm in a good, no, not good, great mood. Why? Because we're here to give the people what they want, baby. Woo, let's go. All right. Yes, let's jump into it. And before we dive into that, I've got two things to tell you about. First off, if you haven't, here's here's my pitch, John. What's your pitch, Steven? Pitch away. Worst pitch man in the business. Pitch, try. No, no, I've got it. <laughs> okay. Do hard things. Okay. It's my new book. I know you've heard, but just listen to this. Okay. I just want to set the stage. Killian Jornet tweets about the book, says, I'm reading this right now. Mm. A week later, he wins the Hard Rock 100 Miler in a course record. Well, that's a simple, simple co- causation correlation but, right there. <laughs> I'm not I'm not done yet, okay. John. I'm not done yet. He's not done. You know, the book comes out. Sarah Hall tweets about the book and says, I'm buying right now. What happens? Oh, I think she got fifth at the World Championships. And one more for you here. Kira D'Amato on Instagram posts like four pictures of the book and says, this is awesome. This is great. Read it. What does she do? Eighth at World Championships. I'm just saying, John, if you want to run fast, you want to be one of the best in the world, I, I'm I'm seeing a pattern here. Get your mind right. Get your grind right. Get do hard things today. All right. And you know what? If you also want to improve your mind and your coaching ability, you know where the best place in the world is to go? It's to join the Scholar program and hop into the Scholar Clubhouse and have discussions with some of the best coaches in high school, college, professional. We got people who are in other sports like triathlon and bringing that knowledge together to have deep dives and conversations on the difficult to understand world of coaching. It's an awesome thing for also new information. And the thing about new information is by that constant exposure to novel um, intel and ways of looking at the world and perspectives, you actually become a more creative and better coach. There's science that backs this up. But if we don't have that exposure to novel ideas or points of views that might not uh, conform with our current worldview, we tend to get in a fixed mindset and do not evolve. So the science on it is really interesting, but every day there's a little something new for you, whether it's a, a new uh, strength and conditioning drill, a new way to think about distance running training, a new subtlety or nuance on biomechanics. Uh, I broke down real quickly uh, to Gay and why she is one of the best middle distance runners in the world currently from a biomechanical perspective. It's pretty clear cut night and day why she can double in the 15 and the 5k at really high levels of proficiency. So get there to expose yourself to the new so you can become better every day. That's right. Hop on board. Check it out. It's good stuff. I love the discussions going on in the the clubhouse. Actually, John, I love that you posted a simple video on how to squat, which was was great because it's one of the simplest things, but also 
important things for strength and conditioning training. So right. we've got all If you do not, if when you squat or deadlift or do any kind of those functional movement patterns, so to speak, and you're not really, really conscious on what we call external rotational torque or lateral rotational torque, if, you, if I said that and you don't know what that means, you probably don't know how to squat. So it's really important to grasp that concept to get the quote unquote magic glute activation. But if you don't create that external rot- rotary force, or torque, it's not going to happen. Exactly. So get on board, check it out, join all sorts of courses, everything included, monthly Zoom discussion, lots of good stuff. All right. So let's go into today's topic. Another exciting one, the 10 timeless guiding principles of distance running training. So this week, We are breaking it down, John. We have, as John is the expert at this, he's taught me so much on this, but it's go back in history, find the obscure books, the obscure pamphlets that are lost, you know, to many of us. And let's read them, understand them, and apply them. And that's what we're going to do today. So these guiding principles actually come from Forbes Carlyle, who was a swimming coach back in the 1940s and 50s. And what Carlisle did was he took Hans uh, Serle's, uh general uh, adaptation and stress principles and whittled them down into principles of training based on his logic. And these are 10 separate guidelines which Bowerman adopted. Uh, you can see clearly in the training of Serdi, Igloy, Lydiard, uh, you know, the, the Finns and the Swedes back in the day, like the, the Aussies. It's all there. It's all intuitive, but it just gave words and specificity to them. So it's very interesting. All right. So let's let's break them down. All I right. have just so listeners know, I have not read this. Yes. Yeah, so this, this again, this is another chapter of the Runner's Training Guide back from 1973. And Steve has not heard these, so these are off the cuff. I'm gonna read them and then read the blurb real quick, and then Steve will react. All right. Number one, the principle of stress. Stress in manual amounts, that's the key, is the stimulus that provokes a training response. It must be regular and strong enough to stimulate adaptation, but it can't come in such heavy and frequent doses that it overwhelms the adaptive system, causing a breakdown. Running itself is only one of many stressors acting on a runner. Others are faulty diet, Uh, psychological unrest, and environmental insults, such as extreme heat, cold, and noise. Runners must consider the stress overload as a whole and adapt to it. I love love the phrase environmental insult. Yes, so do I. (laughs) I'm going to start using that one. Uh, Yes, social media, an environmental insult. Yes, (laughs) I love it. All right, so so let's break this down. This is great because there's a number of things here. Is A, this is the foundation of coaching, is apply the stress to get the adaptation you want, but it has to be the appropriate stress in the right amount with the right stimulus. And then the other thing that I'm glad it, it pointed out there is that often what we do in training is we think of stress or our stimulus in terms of only the running aspect. But what does it do there? It's like running isn't the only stressor. 
It is not the only thing we're adapting to in this moment. It is not the only contributor to the stress load. We need to consider our environmental insults and other similar things. And I think, again, in the 70s, like to hear this um, is really refreshing because it's, well, it's refreshing and concerning because it's still a message that we need to hear today. Because often as coaches, we get so narrow on, you know, up, this is the workout, this is applying the stimulus, but we forget the holistic bigger picture of adaptation is adapting to the entire stress load. What, how are we applying that? And do we have the capacity to adapt in our current situation? I think it's very easy to forget that stimulus is not the same thing as overtaxing. And oftentimes we think of do hard work, but we overtax the system, right? We overwhelm it, so to speak. And that overwhelming of the, the, the human, the body, the runner, the athlete, because we have to hit these arbitrary numerical benchmarks of reps, paces, and our mileage can make it so it becomes an overtaxing situation. And we don't want that, right? We want stimulating. And oftentimes stimulating is like exciting. And I often uh, am reminded of, say, Ernest Hemingway, who would finish his daily writing sessions mid-sentence, right? At the point when like he was really excited to like finish up and like he knew where he's going, but he'd say, I'm going to stop mid-sentence. The words are just going to trail off the page so that I have enough recuperative and restorative energy and excitement to come back with fervor tomorrow for my next writing session. Instead of we often talk about the see God workouts, going to the well, those types of things, which should be very, very, very sparse in a training program, in my opinion, because it's such a high overtaxing, overwhelming of the system. So stress is a concept where we want to stimulate, but not you know, um, erode or corrode. And oftentimes we, we lose that balance because we're locked into, I got to run 70 miles a week, no matter what I got to run this pace, no matter what I have to be even in this temple run and, you know, just grind away. And, you know, the, uh, cult of the grind sometimes is a little bit over, um, you know, emphasized in, in my opinion, just over, um, uh, favored because, you know, hard work everyone can relate to because it's hard, but is it, is it productive work? Yes. I think that's the key is that distinction between hard work and productive work and productive work can be hard, Mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't necessarily like there's shades of gray between that. So, you know, the, the, the brilliant example again, is that your neuromuscular work is what I'll call it. Um, often doesn't feel hard, but it's incredibly stressful and taxing just in a different way than you're used to, right? So again, I think this principle is, what does this mean for coaches? Understand the stress you're trying to apply. Understand how much stress it takes probably to get this adaptation and then figure out how to be creative in your, okay, this is the this is how I'm going to create that exact stress or that that adaptation. And the last thing I'd say on this is be aware and reflect to make sure that the stress applied gave you the adaptation that you think, right? 
So this is like coaching 101 is observe. And the most important thing, too, is understand how stressed globally the athlete is before you create a local or specific stress. We often lose sight of that, which is interesting because when people are under high um, uh, amounts of stress or burden or pressure, so that called that what we call zooming in, right? When you're under a lot of deadlines or you have a really tight, like quote unquote manager schedule, which is what your slots of time are filled throughout the day. And it's like one thing after the next, say if you're in a scholastic setting, you know, so on and so forth, that creates a narrowing point of view and a constriction. But it also, you know, elevates stress hormones as well because you have this laundry list of things to do throughout the day versus, you know, if you ever notice kind of like the best, uh, you know, I was at the world championships and you saw all the sprinters from South Africa or, you know, the USA or even um, Jamaica walking around the stadium. And you know how you could tell they were sprinters? They were walking very, 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 very slow. <laughs> I told my wife, like, oh, look, this is a making four by one team. She goes, how do you know? I go, look how slow they're walking. They're not stressed out, man. They're like, no, 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 no. Everyone else, even general people in the stands or stadiums or fans or even other coaches are walking around that stadium with like somewhere to go, somewhere to be. Sometimes it's important to, you know, uh, unplug and just give yourself a lot of like, you know, uh, no time, so to speak, or un unproductive time where it's just chunks of periods of time where you don't have to be somewhere and do something versus just appointment after appointment of appointment. And if someone's an athlete's living that appointment after appointment after appointment lifestyle, you can bet that they are just in a state of chronic low grade background noise state of stress. Exactly. All right. Let's go to number two. Number two, principle of overload. Overload isn't the same as overwork. Overloading is selective stressing enough to stimulate the desired response without producing exhaustion. Carlisle says the training load must be severe and must be applied frequently enough with sufficient intensity to cause the body to adapt maximally to a particular activity. But he also adds, it is at the same time true that sustained all-out efforts and training or ratios should be made only sparingly. This is what New Zealand coach Arthur Leary meant by his now famous advice, train, don't strain. No results can come without training, but on the other hand, straining too hard and too often is self-defeating. Leary said that training should be an everyday, year-round activity, but that no more than 10% of a runner's efforts should be race-like. Mm. I love it. I mean, not surprisingly, but it really gets at the nuance of that old adage from Lydiard, train, don't strain. What is What does that mean? And, you know, it, it really is, as a coach, what are we trying to do? We're trying to find that sweet spot of enough stimulus or stress for adaptation, but not so much that we go into the overwork area. And if I might go on a slight tangent... Often we've become confused about where this sweet spot lies. Mm, how so? Because we've been influenced, often our influence is top down, elite down. And unfortunately, we often see training programs that, let's say, I'll call it, are artificial. And when you're artificial, that sweet spot shifts and you don't have to worry about that overwork so much because you've got a boost. 
So what it does is it sets unrealistic expectations for the rest of us on what is possible and what we should do in terms of managing the stress load. So I think this is, again, this is a great uh, principle because it forces us to say, okay, for the individual sitting in front of me, where is that sweet spot between overload and overwork? Mm-hmm. I really like, again, in strength and conditioning community, they the more intelligent meatheads, we should say what I call the enlightened meatheads, who take no offense in that, uh, they understand this to a T. And when you look at how they set up, say, a training session or a lifting session, it always is like in three chunks, right? The first chunk of the work is kind of what they call easy work, warm-up work, grease the groove. There's a lot of names for it. But it's, it's stuff that they know, the athlete knows, for sure I can lift this load at this rep and set count. No big deal. The second part, part two, that is kind of like, you know, what they call the threshold, so to speak, in terms of it's the threshold of the current known. They, I, you know, this is like they'll call it daily max, whatever they're capable of doing. And it creates some fatigue and some taxation, but it's not crazy. And then the final set, that's what they call the work set or the stimulating set, where it's like an exploration set where we're exploring now lifting this weight under novel conditions, whether it's conditions of fatigue, a condition of I've never lifted this weight before, let's see what I can do. And I apply that a lot to my training with athletes is typically you'll see like three sets of a workout. Like let's say it's a speed ladder, right? Cutting down 200, a simple one that I've used in high school, uh, 200, 150, 150. We'll do three sets. And the first set is quote unquote more controlled you know, uh, practicing kind of a cut down throughout a progression throughout every rep. The second set is a little bit, again, still controlled within their ability, but now fatigue starting to creep up neuromuscularly. And then the last set is more exploring how to create speed through different reactive mechanisms. When you've lost, when you have a certain degree of fatigue in the system, which as a distance runner, you will incur no matter what, at the end of a race, right? How much fatigue is variable based off your conditioning and the pacing and the, you know, external stimuli and environmental insults, so to speak, like the heat or wind. (laughs) Love environmental insults. It's a great phrase, (laughs) but it gives them the opportunity. So like, I think in terms of thinking about training, we must also think for quote unquote workouts, there needs to be an exploratory period which is always going to be the last third of the session or the last third of a block of a session where it's okay to fail, okay to like try something new. But if the goal is simply very linear and rudimentary, you have to run this pace for this duration, no matter what, for these sets. Then now what we're doing is we're just being a conditioner and we're not being a trainer. There's a really uh, subtle but distinct difference Uh, between conditioning and training. I was recently reading Interval Training by Fox and Matthews, the foundational text that kind of brought the concept of interval training with work periods and relief periods to the masses, um, where all this quote-unquote hit, um, uh, you know, uh, information intel is founded upon. And they they made an interesting distinction. They're like, conditioning is enhancing or stressing the physiological capacity of an organism without any regard for skill or performance. Doesn't matter. Training is both. Training is stressing the physiological capacity of the athlete, but coupled with 
adequate skill of performance. And so that was a very interesting distinction because I think a lot of times we overemphasize just baseline general conditioning without skill. And skill here is technique. It's about being able to call upon what your arm action is doing, what have you, whatever that may be. Subtle things we often don't think about as runners. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think that's spot on. It's like, um, I like the exploratory mindset there. Because often in running, which differs from both swimming and lifting, is we tend to almost simplify our training where we just have like warm up, our set, and then our cool down, right? Or our workout and then our cool down. And often in other sports, um, there's more nuance in that workout phase, right? It's like, what are we trying to apply? And even people like, you know, this is maybe where you go back to Igloy. Like Igloy was a genius at this is like in his set, like he'd break down the workout into sets and every set kind of had a purpose. And ev- and like based on how you're re- reacting to responding, there would occasionally be like those kind of exploratory you know, sets where it's like, okay, I want this 400 very hard, you know? And it's just like, all right, here we go. Or there'd be, you know, somewhere you'd change the uh, the running mechanics from what they called short swing to long swing. So think quick and fast versus like putting more force, force in the ground. So there, there used to be, or some coaches have a little more nuance there. And I think that that would be something worthwhile to bring back into uh, your program and try. Yeah, it's re- kind of almost remembering, like, say, Scott Simmons um, in his Take the Lead book with William Freeman, the hammer interval, right? Like, so instead of like pre prescribing when the hammer interval might be, and the hammer interval is just simply just what it sounds like hammer that inter- work period interval. Like, all right, you're on quarters at 65. Well, here's the hammer interval, run a quarter at 59. <laughs> <laughs> create this amazing taxation and stress and then keep recovery, the recovery period the same, right? As a coach, we tend to get in a pre-prescriptive mode versus if you're observing and you're saying, look, you tell the athlete, I want you to run these 14 by a quarter, 15 times a quarter, whatever. And at a certain point, I'm you're going to run at least one or two hammer intervals. I'm not going to tell you when until you start, until right before you start it, right? That also puts the onus on the athlete to be disciplined with their pacing strategy early because if they know they have a hammer interval or two hammer intervals coming, they're not going to like, you know, run too fast too soon. And a great thing as a coach, you can observe and figure out, okay, as a coach, when do these athletes, this is athlete typically flounder at what, you know, point in the race, like what segment in the race, early, middle, end, you know, and then break that down and say, okay, we want to explore pressing and pushing in practice at a certain time within the session that is uh, in requisite with the time in the race where they tend to flounder to give them that ability to explore and gain confidence that, hey, I can press in the middle really hard here or towards the penultimate, like say lap and still be and still have find that energy to, to, to you know, kick it in or have something left in the tank. Because oftentimes what happens, right, we have a self-protective mechanism we're like, ah, I don't want to expend this energy because I know I have to save it for the end. But if you get more comfortable and familiar with that, voila, you can then start to like throw in a surge in the middle or take off further from the finish line and know that like, hey, I still will have it. And But if the only time you get to practice that and explore that is in a race when the pressure's high and there's all this, you know, 
um, external stimuli and statuses involved and what have you, you're probably not going to do it. You're just always going to go for this reliable, safe bet process that is that has gotten you to where you've been so far. Exactly. No, you're spot on. All right. Let's go into number three. Number three. Principle of specificity. Even though all training can't be exactly like racing, it must be a close approximation. The system adapts to the specific exercise it is given. Walk and you'll become fit for walking. Bike and you'll become a better bicyclist. Run and you'll get in shape for running. But there is little carryover from one to another. The effects are even somewhat specific with running, with sprinting and distance running each requiring and producing different actions, reactions. How much fast rep work can, or uh, how much fast repeat work can help a distance runner and how much slow endurance work helps a sprinter is still a subject of some controversy. It's amazing that it's still a subject of some controversy 50 years ago and it is today. But it is apparent that the bulk of one's training must be within a reasonable range of race distance and or close to race pace to be the most effective. Yeah, that, it's funny the controversies, so they just don't go away. Yeah. You know, they stay the same. We never solve anything. That's the answer. We never solve anything. We're going to be arguing over the same things 50 years from now. Um, so this one's pretty straightforward, specificity. Like, to me, the one thing that I'd have, the caveat is, like, you just have to make sure that you keep this in perspective. And it's not saying specific all the time. It's saying of course the specific stuff is going to translate better but like that doesn't mean you have to do 400 meter repeats all day for a miler right so it's that nuance that you're trying to get at is how do you create that specific stuff and then also support it around it so that you're able to do the work over the long haul yeah and i think that's the, the principle of specificity we can sometimes become over-specialized as well. Yes. So there is, this, again, like everything, the middle path is the way. There's a sweet spot. So to think I only need to run, right, as we talked about uh, in the last episode, it's a half-truth, right? All I got to do is just run to become a better runner. Easy half-truth to fall um, victim to. But the principle of specificity, what they're saying here is if you want to run, and this is like, say, Bowerman's strategy of having a date pace and, or you're working towards a goal pace, which is brilliant also terms in cognitive psychological goal setting. You have a starting point and you have an end point. And even though the path won't be linear and smooth to get to that end point, that at least gives you direction of why you're doing what you're doing. Same situation here. If you have a goal, a date pace, and then a goal pace you're striving towards, that's the specificity they're talking about. But if you're just trying to generally Get lower or elevate your lactic or acidosis threshold, or I just want to get generally faster, that's not super specific. But if you're saying I want to get to a place where I can run without creation of glycolysis and pyruvate and lactate five minutes for a mile for an hour straight, that's a really specific thing. So again, when we think about specificity, we also need to think about specificity of training direction, not just training action exactly no i think that's important i'm going to give you an example um so at the world championships they have a media 800 right yeah and we had former 352 miler kyle merber 
run the Medi 800 and run 157. And you might be thinking, he's a 352 miler. He still trains 50 miles a week. 157 is something high school kids do all the time. What's going on here? He just runs easy 50 miles a week. You know, you look he's at He's not it, training, he, he's exercising. Big difference. <laughs> so there's the principle of specificity, right? When you are training hard for something and have run, you know, if you want to run sub 60 second quarters or 56 second quarters, you need to have the speed and the training to do so. You can't just stay generally fit. And it makes a big, big difference. So there's my example. All right. I love it. All right. Number four. Timeless guiding principle is the principle of regularity. Mm. Almost any kind of running, any amount will, quote unquote, work if it's done regularly. Once a runner has the daily running habit, it's hard not to improve. Physiologists say the runner needs to train at least every other day, three to four days a week to gain and maintain fitness. Every day is better. Sometimes twice a day is best. Conditioning comes quickly with speed arriving somewhat faster than endurance, but the reverse is true too. Conditioning vanishes quickly during long layoffs with sharpness appearing, uh, disappearing somewhat quicker than endurance. The usual thought, says Dr. Sheehan, is that speed suffers if you go five or more miles without speed training and endurance if you go over a week without distance. One study of the Danish Olympic crew showed that they completely lost their conditioning after one month of inactivity. Hmm. All right. I like it. I mean, it's again, it's spot on. It's the consistency. If you don't consistently apply that stimulus regularly, you're going to detrain or not get better. And, you know, the, the one thing that I like there at the beginning is they said, and I forget the exact wording, but it said essentially like, you know, a variety of distances or any distances will work and develop as long as there is regularity to it. Yes. Almost any kind of running in any amount will work. Yes. So <laughs> that the key is the consistency over the long haul, which we often mistake when we see like either mileage or intervals or whatever have you. And I think the brilliance of Lydiard especially is in the 60s, you have to remember he's coming from the 40s and 50s where people would take long breaks and maybe go on walks for a long time. Or only train like two months. Yeah. And yes, exactly. And Lydiard's saying, yo, guys, stop that. I want you to spend six months just running consistently. <laughs> And then we'll start the track training. And I think that might have been his biggest push or innovation in a era where the consistency from year to year was often not there. Yeah, the concept of the daily running habit is, you know, the key, right? It's it's like you have a daily like liquid hydration habit, you have a daily like sleep habit. And it's just it's understanding that simplicity where you know, the famous quote attributed to Aristotle, right? Excellence is a habit, you know, quote, where it's just do it every day or do it near every day. Because sometimes, again, life gets in the way, reality gets in the way, and you can't. But as long as it's a habitual thing, it becomes easy because 
The other thing is creating this dopamine relationship, right? Where you actually, running's great because you get the endorphin rush and the you know neurochemical release when you run, but also too, if you look forward to running and you have it a habit, you're going to be able to get out the door. I'm reminded of like Jack Foster's uh, book, The Ancient Marathoner, where he says, I never trained. It was never something I had to do. I just wanted to run. And the better I got running, the more I wanted to run. That's a, that's a demonstration of a positive dopamine loop where it's creating a habitual uh, excitement and anticipation that results in something that is ultimately good for you, even though things might be difficult while you're doing it it creates this really good relationship. And that's really what we want. We want ideally things that we habituate towards having a virtuous relationship versus what we call addiction is things we habituate towards that have a vicious uh, cycle. Exactly. No, I, it, it, that distinction or that uh, difference between that, that positive motivational kind of hit versus that addictive <laughs> negative thing is a very interesting thing. And that's where it's like, you're always looking at, again, this is the theme, that middle path of how do I create that consistency without creating that dependency? Mm-hmm. Amen. All right. Number five, halfway through. All right. Let's do it. Of progression. Mm. Obviously, Progress is quickest and most apparent at the start, and it shows as one approaches their maximal potential. The more a runner progresses, the harder it is to keep improving. Progress, however, doesn't go in a smooth upward curve. There tends to be a plateau effect with a series of sudden jumps separated by stagnant periods. The runner has to be prepared to work through those periods of no apparent improvement waiting for the jumps. All else being equal, however, it is possible to hold the ground um, gained and move from strength to strength as condition and confidence increases. Middle distance runner uh, Mark Winziger, I butchered the name, sorry, compared uh, progress to breaking through snowdrifts. The way I'm preparing for a race is kind of like taking a big snow plow and moving that snow out of the way. The next time I run, I have the plow, the place plowed, and it's much, much easier to get through. Then I plow a little bit more. The first time it's hard, the second time it's a little bit easier, and the third time you're just kind of floating. Each succeeding run over old ground seems easier, he's saying. Arthur Lillard has found this to be true with long runs. It's, it is a big job building up to 20 miles the first time. but in succeeding years, there will be no difficulty whatsoever reaching the distance again, even with comparatively light training. In other words, you only have to do the buildup once and get the hard work in once. You won't be coasting later, but you'll find it a lot easier to get back to where you were and seem like, and it won't seem like much work at all. Mm. I love it. You know, what is the, it nails a couple of different things. Yeah. That's, a, that was a pretty juicy little like blur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it nails what the clean slate phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Progress yeah. fast at the first. And then the other thing that I love is it frames what we think of progress. And we often think of it incorrectly. We think of it as this kind of linear line, or maybe even this line where we have a little bumps, but we're still going upwards. And I think they get it on the nail on the head here, which is, no, often what it is, is it's a series of jumps that you don't know when they're going to occur. It's you make the jump, 
You let li- you live on the plateau. How long do you have to live on the plateau? We don't know. You know, and I think that is it's a much more healthy framing than, you know, a either the linear or the linear even with some bumps in the road because like Spending a long time stagnating is can be really tough, but it's part of the key to progress and the key to getting better is figuring out a how do you kind of you know deal with that, and then b how do you change the work or stay consistent at the work so that you are there when that breakthrough can present itself. Yeah, it goes back to the concept, right, of stable gains. I mean, that's really the principle of progress is stable gains. And we see this with the Soviet periodization models of what they call, quote unquote, constant training or step training, right? Uh, you know, Anatoly Bondarchuk famously applied this individual basis where the whole concept is you do the same thing over and over and over again. And at first it's hard. That's what they call in the old army readiness manual training, the toughening stage. Then you had that middle stage, which is a slow, uh, what they call the slow improvement or plateau stage. And then you have what they call the maintenance or underload or recovery stage, where you're actually doing the same amount of work and same threshold of work that you did in the beginning. But now that stimulus is not stressful. So it's actually restorative. It's a recovery. It's pretty interesting. And when that workload gets to that place, that's the signal when you know it's time to boom, take a leap or take a jump. And, you know, that Lydiard talking about how it's easier to return to 20 miles long runs after you've already scaled the mountain because you know the pathway to get there. That's neuromuscular. That's physiological. That's structural. That's mechanical. You know, it's Steve and I have ran, you know, in college and even post-collegially 18, 20 mile long runs on the regular for, you know, what, almost 10 years straight. Even now, coming into our late 30s, if one asks us to go out and do that, after a little bit of conditioning, we could accelerate to a 20-mile long run very, very rapidly, right? It, it wouldn't be this 10% increase in the long run to be like, all right, let me go out for you know about an hour, eight miles. Okay, that was okay. Let me go out for about you know another you know 90-minute run. All right, 14 miles. That's okay. Okay, next week, we'll do 20. No big deal. <laughs> but those gains were really stable. Right. And that's the thing with this principle of regularity is we are always seeking to get to stable gains. So that concept of step loading is super important. Most people, though, um, tend to get impatient and they just want the numbers to go up every day or every week. And it's just it's not reality. It's not how the body works. All right. Principle number six is the principle of diminishing returns. The first mile is the most helpful one as far as conditioning goes. Each succeeding one gives less and less benefit than the one before. In other words, runners who work more and more are working for less and less. Sheehan explains with an analogy of the progress at work. Sheehan is a longtime runner, doctor and freelance writer who often covers air and water pollution stories as well. A manufacturer said it costs very little to get 90% of the mercury out of the water, but it costs considerably more to eliminate the next 5% and an astronomical rate to take out the last little bit. That remaining percentage of mercury, though, 
can still have serious consequences. It is somewhat the same with training. It doesn't take much to get 90% fitness, only a few miles a day. But it takes progressively more and more training as you get closer to your ultimate potential until at the highest levels, you're putting in a huge investment for a very, very small return. He also notes, it's the small gains, though, that make the difference between winning and losing. You know, this reminds me of a conversation I had actually with Shalane Flanagan, who said, you know, was you're talking about the difference between when she was competing and where she is now with doing those, you know, when she did her six marathons or whatever. And she said, it's pretty simple. The difference between getting me getting in 230 shape and 220 shape is astronomical. Yes. <laughs> right? 230 shape is that 90%. It's not that hard. I can do that off of just normal training, et cetera, et cetera. Not that crazy. 220 shape takes a hell of a lot more focus, commitment, work, et cetera, specificity, all that good stuff. And I think this is what it's getting at is, and we know this, right? Mm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lot easier to kind of maintain decent fitness than it is to build. So, you know, that's just part of it. And that's part of the coaching is, is our job is to figure out not, you know, essentially the first 90, whatever percent is simple. It's not hard. Like it's pretty relatively straightforward. But it's our job to figure out, okay, as coaches, how do we get that final few percent out? What actually matters? We have a limited amount of effort or energy we can put forth. And as they said, the returns are diminishing. So how do we create the, the training to to get us there? You know, that's our job as coaches. Yeah, it's tough to understand. Like seconds don't become, you know, equal as you get better and better and faster and faster. And the amount of work to shave off those seconds don't become equal. And that's really tough to wrap around. But like the 1500s are a really good example, right? You know, with women, it's not a big deal to get someone to run 420 in the 15 at kind of like a higher level of, you know, adulthood, collegiately, post-collegiately. And then it's, you know, it's a little harder to go from 410 or 420 to 410 I mean, that's takes some work, but then to go from like 410 to 405 takes a lot of work, a lot. And then to go from 405 to four, you know, flat even just takes an astronomical amount. And those seconds are different seconds. And that's, I think we often forget. It's like you have to do different things to get you in that ballpark to be able to run those, shave off those seconds but we often just go back to what we're familiar with or what we know worked to get in that you know, aligns with my principle of like, what got you here won't get you there, which is you did all this work to get here, but now in order to get there a little higher up on the mountain, you got to do something different. And whether it's different in terms of most people choose more of the same, but I, you know, argue it's different in terms of different stimuli that's going to help, you know, through a recipe and concoction, um, effect kind of create this little bump or boost because of the novelty. Yes. It, 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 I love the, what got you here won't get you there. Um, <laughs> slogan there that I'll call, because I think that gets at it perfectly, which is you have to, again, change the stimulus and figure out 
what are the requirements to get to that next level, which are often different from getting to this level. And often we make this mistake because we sit there and we think, oh, this worked for me in high school or this worked for me in college. So I'm just going to do more and more of this. But that's not how the game works. That's not how adaptation works. That's not how, you know, getting those final few seconds or even milliseconds works because you are fundamentally different from the person who was training a year ago or two years mm. ago or three years ago because the training fundamentally changed you. Yeah. So yeah, that's now, great. Yeah. Great. Now you have different you have different kinks in the pipe. You have different limiting factors because you are fundamentally different. So you have to change something. Yeah, even though your name and face generally stayed the same in that year period, like as coaches, we have to remember the athlete is a different organism year to year, different. And it's just, especially if they're, you know, going through puberty, especially if they're coming off a kind of like C, uh, a, a PR or like paramount season, so to speak, they're different. And like, we can't just say, all right, just do what we did last year, just better or more. And you'll get the same rate of improvement. Oftentimes you'll actually like stagnate in a bad way or retard that improvement and backtrack. Exactly. All right, let's go to the next one. Principle number seven is the principle of recovery. The interval Mm. system has a bigger meaning than simply mixing fast and slow running in a track workout. The principle of alternating effort with recovery and rest applies to all training, regardless of specific method used. Carlisle writes, recuperation periods are essential both during a single training session and throughout the year. Rest, with consequent physical and mental relaxation, must be carefully blended with doses of exercise. A rhythmical cycle of exercise and recuperation should be established. Bill Bowerman, the highly successful coach at University of Oregon, has pioneered what he called the hard easy program. Bowerman staggers the intensity of workouts, having a hard one every two or three days. He thinks this allows athletes to handle a higher workload with less strain and that it stimulates faster improvement than a same load every day plan. All sound programs leave room for rest and recovery. This is a time for, there is a time for strenuous activity and a time for resting, Carlisle writes. The rigidity of a two-defined program of training may easily drive the athlete to exhaustion. I love it. You know, it's stress plus rest before (laughs) we, you know, market it. So this is what's brilliant, but it is. It's like, and what I love is they're applying interval, that intervals training idea of stress, recovery, fast, slow, to much broader and saying you have to have some balance in the training to recovery so that your recovery allows you to adapt and grow from the stress or the stimulus. And the other thing that they said in there is it's holistic too. It's rest and recovery doesn't just mean easy days. Mm -hmm. It means holistically, how do you have some sort of downtime or time to rejuvenate both physically and mentally so you can grow, adapt, and get better. These are all good words, right? Recuperation, restoration, rejuvenation. You know, I mean, we call it rest for short or relief. Um, In uh, Matthews and Fox's interval training book, when they go over interval training, they talk about the work interval and the relief interval. And I think that's a good way to think about it. It's like, what is relief for one athlete might not be the same uh, or 
give relief to another athlete. So if we're talking about something where it's like pre's 30, 40 drill, well, 40 seconds for 200 at that time for pre was relief from 30 seconds, right? It might not be relief for, you know, a different athlete of the same age and, you know, play uh, background of our similar age and background. And it might be, you know, too much relief for another, right? And that's the, the thing with a coach is we have to figure out what is relief. What does relief look like that will either have a restorative benefit, rejuvenating benefit, recuperation benefit. We often just blanket rest and we think of it as a polar black and white extreme. There's there's work and there's rest, right? It's this polarized training model theory. But as we've talked about many a times, when you look at Siler's work, that polarization of what is considered easy or relief has wide variance for the athlete population they looked at. (laughs) relief for one athlete might be jogging around at nine minute pace relief for another athlete as an easy restorative activity might be 10 miles at six minute pace. It's still interpreted as relief. Yes, absolutely. I think the nuance of that relief and recovery is something important. And it, and we know this, right? For a high school kid, recovery might mean a day off for someone else. It might, you know, for experienced runner, it might mean 10 miles easy. <laughs> So it just, or, you know, I remember with Alan Webb, like his quote unquote recovery days were sometimes a little bit nuts and sometimes they were a day off. So it just, it just varies with what, you know, you're trying to accomplish and uh, what you're adapted to. Yeah. And like, even if you look at Joe Noon's training or like say the training I applied this year with high school runners, like we'd have quote unquote your speed or neural day. And then we'd have, you know, quote unquote your endurance or, uh, you know, lactate threshold acidosis threshold day and I put them back to back right Monday Tuesday why because most high school runners are at their best in the beginning of the week because they had the weekend off (laughs) and then Wednesday was a total relief day like hey come do dynamic warm-ups and go home like no big deal and for them based off that pattern of training it worked really well no one got hurt everyone was excited people ran fast good times were had by all so it doesn't necessarily need to be this rigid, hard, easy. It Think of it as, I like better than hard, easy, I think of it as a work relief program and figuring out what work looks like and what relief looks like. All right. Principle number eight is the principle of seasons. Submaximal training can be viewed as putting money in the bank, all out racing as withdrawing it. Just old, ancient fundamental concepts love it no one can withdraw indefinitely eventually they have to go back and restore the reserves this is why it's important to race sparingly during the season and to allow race-free training periods during the year arthur Lear states flatly you can't race well the year round because your condition will only take you so far when you're racing hard you can't train hard if you compromise you can hold your form for three or four months but then you're going to have to go back and start the buildup again. If a runner is lucky, Lydia and others say, they may squeeze two peaks of racing from a year, each lasting no more than approximately three months and staggered with recovery breaks. But higher peaks are less long and frequent. Lasse Viren, the Olympic 5,010 meter th- uh, champion, says, top shape can only or can be timed fairly, fairly accurately, at least in my case, top shape will only stay for a period of three weeks. 
it's not possible to conserve good form for a long time. I love it. You know, seasonality. I think this applies to even life. Yeah. Not just training. <laughs> right. It's like you have some seasonality of it. Like you have to different seasons mean different things and you can't be on the cry, quote unquote grind, you know, world forever because just like in training, you can only be sharp for so long. And I think too often we try and violate this, right? And we get a little greedy and we think like, oh, I'm going to be sharp and have my cake and eat it too. But this is why this principle is important. It reminds you that you you got to go back. You got to go back and have some refresh, restoration, submaximal, build the foundation, all that good stuff. Um, and if you don't, like it's going to come back to bite you. And you see this all the time in athletes who maybe make it to worlds and then flounder out or flounder out in the end of the season. Why? Because they often tried to hold on to things for, for much too long or tried to quote unquote train and race, you know, maximally both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Another way you see it too is like athletes who are building up for a big championship race or what have you like right at the, right before it get a little ticky tack injury, not a big deal, but just enough of an injury to like force them to take a unplanned break or layoff from training, you know, as we get closer to that race. And because their foundation was so robust before that happened, it's kind of this forced rejuvenation period, this forced seasonality that gives them this little bit of a reprieve before the big stressful thing. And then they come out and do really well at the world championships or set a record or something. And they're like, I had no expectation, no idea out of the blue. Well, it's, you know, it's when it's like a small one that has a quick re rebound effect from is not, you know, a severe mechanical thing like a hamstring injury or stress fracture or what have you that can allow just enough rejuvenation to give this intermittent seasonality so that then they can realize that fitness they earned because the fatigue has worn off. And that's really what they're talking about, right? The two-factor model, fitness and fatigue. And you can't, you know, uh, have express boat or ex have a high expression of racing capacity if you are under a high level of fatigue. Racing creates fatigue, but it also allows you to express the fitness you have. But if you keep racing, then your fit fitness goes down and fatigue goes up. Same deal in training you're building a lot of fitness and training when you're training hard and in these kind of like really focused periods, but fatigue is way up. So you can't express that newfound fitness you're building and you don't know how fit you are. So it's always this balance of understanding what we're working towards, what's holding us back and then picking your spots. Too often people think like, Oh, I need to be on autopilot and, you know, be just as good year round. It's always about progression and always about, a culminating effort, in my opinion, as a coach. And you're saying, this is when we're going to culminate all the work we're doing is at this time of the year. Yes. Agreed. hundred percent. All right. Number nine, principle of pacing. Pace has two meanings. One type is obvious. The speed of a runner training during an, indiv during an individual run and the other is less obvious, but just as important. This is the kind of pace they maintain week to week, month to month, year to year. One principle rules both kind of pacing. The harder and faster a person goes, the shorter they'll be able to sustain it. Fast pace gets you there quickly. Slow pace lets you, get, lets you run longer. 
set the pace accordingly to the distance of the run and the projected length of the career so as not to run down midway through. Oh, I like how they took pacing here and applied it to their career. Yes, I know, right? This is something that we often don't think about and something, you know, um, something we don't think about much at all is we just think, oh, how do I get to be the best? As fast as possible. As fast as possible. But often that that messes you up over the long haul. For example, I don't know. I'm I'm interested to see how the Ingerbritz, how Jake Jakob Ingerbritsen does. Because he got very good very fast. And maybe he'll hold on to it. I don't know. Um, but it'll be interesting. His brothers have kind of faded out a little bit. Um, when you compare them to maybe a, a Nick Willis who stuck around for a really freaking long time at the highest level. It, and I think that it's, it, again, maybe it's work, worth it for Jakob to come in and say, hey, in my early 20s, I'm going to dominate. It's also similar to maybe a, a Noah Nien versus uh, El Garouge, who stuck around for a lot longer. Um, so, or uh, Elliot Kipchoge, right? So it's it's interesting on this pacing. I think it's something that we often don't think about much, but need to think about much more so because often in a variety of events, but especially if you're a distance runner, you know, if you stick around long enough, good things can happen. Again, look at maybe a Sarah Hall who got fifth and she's, I think, 38, 39 now. So, you know, think about how your career, how your longevity of your career and what you want it to be. Pacing, yeah, also comes back to the concept of relief or restoration and recovery, right? And oftentimes yes. we have a work bias. We just think about what exercises to do and that creates the stimulation restoration rejuvenation also creates a stimulation whether it's uh, massage or you know sleep nutrition those all have stimulating um, adaptive influences as well and part of pacing is knowing that if you like say you go harder and faster well yeah you need to couple that with some you know therapy of some sorts right and we often forget that oh i just it's easy to say okay i just sleep and eat but oftentimes too if you have joint restrictions or tense or overly active muscle groups or something, it's going to be very hard to get that alleviated with just your own little like poking and prodding and foam rolling or static stretching. Sometimes you actually have to understand you have to, you know, go and get that rejuvenation through some type of therapy. And this is the same thing with the concept of pacing, right? Is we tend to think of training as always this hard, difficult thing and this work bias, but sometimes you need to back off and just have go for therapeutic runs in the forest, really relax, no big deal. Lasse Viren was really a proponent of this and actually showed Henry Rono the value of this um, during the apex of Henry Rono's time. And so he started to adapt these really slow, long runs in the forest that were more like kind of walks, more like kind of just, you know, poly poly. But it gave that kind of, um, as they call like nature therapy, so to speak, which allowed for a longer sustainment of or bouncing back from ebbs and flows in his career during his very, you know, tumultuous time as the world's best distance runner. Exactly. Now that's another good point. It's, it's this pacing concept can, you know, ties into everything. Yeah. All right, let's get into the last one. Last and final, number 10, timeless principle of distance running is the principle of individualization. 
There is no one perfect plan for everyone. Each has to be custom made to suit the individual user's likes and needs, abilities and goals. Carlisle says, always the most important consideration must be how the individual is responding to training. Whether the athlete is carrying the physical load of training without strain or whether their body is slowly losing the capacity to adjust itself. Therefore, training must always be an individual problem. No fixed training schedule should be followed rigidly. Blindly following any written schedule is unwise. Training must be tailored to suit the individual on the day for the best results. You know, you're going to have no argument here. I think it's brilliant. (laughs) We talk about individualization on this podcast ad nauseum. It's one of the most important concepts that we have, but it's so easy to fall into the path of not doing it. Yes. Right? Cookie cutter programs are easy to administer, but not really that easy to swallow. Yes. I mean, on the podcast, we've talked about individualizing within a group, a group or team. We talked in our scholar program, Here's My Pitch, we had a long 90-minute discussion on how to individualize with a larger team in high school or college. So no argument here. I think it's a brilliant, you know, again, I love that they were talking about this in 1973. It's kind of depressing that we're still talking about it and still have to hammer home these things. But that's why these principles are called timeless, is we mm-hmm. get distracted by the shiny objects, I think. But if you just stick to these timeless principles, you're going to succeed. And that's the foundation of the art of coaching, honestly, is this art of individualization. Like, it's an art. It really is. There's no science because... Everyone is unique and everyone's a special snowflake, right? Everyone's an outlier to some degree. Yeah, there's certain basic foundational ingredients they all need, but the dosage, the timing of the dosage is going to, you know, vary from person to person. And so while that can make seem to make the game a little overwhelming, the reality is, though, if you hold fast and true to these principles, it gives the coach really sound guidance in how to, you know, uh, craft a solution and make it an art, artful solution to the problem that is how to get the athlete better and ready to compete on the day. Exactly. hundred percent. I think, again, it's a spot on principle and one that needs to, again, 50 years later. <laughs> Nothing's new under the sun, my friend. Nothing's new under the sun. We just forgot it. So yes, this was fun to remember these timeless guiding principles. That's right. So again, if you think you have the secret, if you think you figured it out, just remember nothing new under the sun. We're still having the same debates 50 years later. That shouldn't be discouraging. It should tell you that these things, that if you nail the basics, you stick to the timeless principles, good stuff's going to happen. So make sure if you're struggling on figuring out, oh, how do I get better? How do I keep my team going? Go back to the timeless stuff. And if I you always do go, that, right. I always go back to do the basics brilliantly. Those who do exactly. the basics brilliantly and know what the basics are, which the basics are outlined here with these guiding principles. Like if you do those brilliantly, you will be highly successful from a results standpoint, but you'll also be highly successful from a relation, human, enjoyment, excitement, long-term, not burnout, sustainable standpoint. Exactly. Spot on. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this 
episode where we take you back in time and show you that go with the timeless principles, study your history. If you want to go on deeper dives on everything in history, guess where the best place on the planet is to go? The Scholar Program. You got it. We, we, we go deep. This is why John is our expert historian and reads all these books so that we can you know, break it down for you guys. So if you're interested and want more, check that out and uh, join the program.